I'd like to read it for us as we begin. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. And then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to the disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray. Father, what a good word this is. That you are a God who calls sinners. Because that includes all of us. And thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the invitation that is there for all who will come to you. That they can find forgiveness of sins in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. I want to begin this morning by sharing a story that actually comes from John MacArthur, a pastor who shared this a number of years ago. But it's a very uh, good story that fits with the text today. Along the southern coast of Chile, shipwrecks are frequent. And many years ago, some concerned villagers built a crude little life-saving station and equipped it with a boat. The building was just a hut, and a few devoted fishermen took turns keeping a constant watch over the sea. With little regard for themselves, these devoted men would go out day or night to rescue people in danger, and many lives were saved. One day, a number of American movie stars and their families were rescued when their yacht ran aground on the rocks. The grateful celebrities made a sizable donation of money to the little life-saving station. At last, the villagers said, we can tear down our crude station and build a more adequate facility and purchase a really nice boat. As news of the rescued people spread, the little station became famous. And through the years, grateful people who had been saved sent more money And some retirees actually moved to the area and became part of the life-saving operation. They gave more money, more new boats were purchased, additional crews were trained, and the facility was repeatedly enlarged and beautified. They replaced the simple cots with beds, and they added nice furniture for a homey atmosphere. The kitchen was enlarged. A large meeting room was constructed so the members would be comfortable as they gathered to discuss the work. They continued to remodel and decorate the station until it took on the look and character of a club. Someone found an old photo of the first station and hung it in the hall to remind everyone of just how far we had progressed. But many members grew disinterested in going out on life-saving missions So they hired professional crews to do the work on their behalf. The members spent their time discussing what kind of music the orchestra should play and what kind of food the chef should prepare. Of course, the life-saving motif prevailed on the club emblem and literature, and in fact, just about every member wore a small gold lifeboat on their lapel or dress. And they had a decorative lifeboat model attached to the wall at the front of their meeting hall. One day a cruise ship wrecked off the coast, and the hired crew brought in many boatloads of half-drowned people. They were cold and dirty and bruised. They were wet and some were bleeding, and water and blood dripped on the new carpet. The club was terribly messed up. The property committee called an urgent meeting. After intense discussion, they voted to build a shower outside where shipwreck victims could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next membership meeting, there was an awful dispute. Some members wanted to stop the unpleasant life-saving activities altogether. The life-saving had disrupted the social life of the club. However, other members insisted in keeping the life-saving as their main activity And they pointed out, we are still called a life-saving station. 
Well, those members were voted down, and they were told, if you insist on saving people, then do it somewhere else. So there was a split in the membership. About a third of the members moved down the coast, built a crude hut. At first, it was hard going for the little group. They had only meager finances, so they made do with only one boat. As the years went by, the station prospered. A better facility was built. However, in a few years, the new station became a club and the life-saving work became less and less of a priority. A few members were dedicated to life-saving and so they moved even further down the coast and built another crude life-saving station. Through the years, history repeated itself. And if you visit the coast of southern Chile today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks still happen but most of the people drown. The work of evangelism, spiritual life-saving, is the purest, truest, and most essential work of the church. The work of rescuing men and women out of the sea of sin, rescuing them from the breakers of hell, is the greatest work of the church. It's why Jesus came. He came to seek and to save the lost. But sometimes... Churches forget their mission. Sometimes Christians forget their mission. We get comfortable. We surround ourselves with Christian friends and we enjoy the changes that God has made in our life as we have come to know him. And we forget that Jesus is still calling sinners and he has called us to join with him in that work. This story in Luke's gospel is a challenge to all of us. In it, we see Jesus' love for sinners, his love for the least of these in our world. And it challenges all of us to follow him in that work. The story begins with an outrageous example, and we see that in verses 27 and 28. When we read these verses about the calling of Levi, we might not think of it as being as outrageous as it really is. But Jesus continues to reach out to those who are outcasts in society. We have read how Jesus has healed a leper. He has healed a paralytic. He has healed a demoniac. These people that were kind of shunned or cast out or nobody wanted to deal with. And now he calls to himself a tax collector named Levi. Now, we may not like tax collectors. I don't think anybody really wants to get audited by the IRS. But it's not like it was in Jesus' day. Tax collectors were despised in the time when Christ lived because they worked for the enemy. They worked for Rome. They were collaborators. They were called traitors. They were dishonest people. I mean, they had a terrible reputation for their greed and corruption. Now, we don't know what Levi was like. Maybe Levi was an honest tax collector, or maybe he fit the mold. But something was going to happen to Levi that day that would be extraordinary. Kent Hughes described how the tax system worked for Rome. What Rome would do is that they would look at an area, and they would assess a region or a district a certain amount of tax. That's what had to be collected and paid during the course of that year. And then they would let that out to the highest bidder. You could bid on being a tax collector. And if you collected more than what Rome wanted, you got to keep that profit. So say Rome wanted $10,000 from this area and you collected 11000 you could keep that 11000 I mean, you could keep that extra $1,000. It was a system that encouraged corruption and extortion. In fact, that's how these people were viewed. There were two kinds of taxes people had to pay, too. Uh, one kind was a fixed tax, like a poll tax or a land tax or things like that that was set. But the other side, the duties and tolls were more discretionary. And... If you were a tax collector, you know, you could set up your booth by the road. There at Capernaum, there was a major road that went past Galilee and would go on up to Damascus. And uh, you could set up your booth there. 
And you could stop somebody who was coming by with their cart, and you could make them unpack everything, and certainly you could find something to tax them on. In fact, people were taxed for using roads. They were taxed for docking their boat in a harbor. There were import and export taxes. There was even a sales tax on certain items. There was even a cart tax in which each wheel of the cart was taxed. The system was a breeding ground for graft and exploitation. And if somebody refused to pay the tax, well, the tax collector usually had a couple uh, thugs who would be behind him who were enforcers that would make sure that you paid or you were going to pay for it one way or the other. The Talmud classified tax collectors as robbers. They put them in the same category as prostitutes and thieves. And nobody really liked them. So when Jesus called Levi to be his disciple, it is shocking. I mean, it is even scandalous. It's the scandal of the cross that Jesus would call someone who was a tax collector to be his disciple. Now, we know Levi as Matthew. It's the same person. If you read this story in Matthew's gospel, you're going to have the same account there, only he is called Matthew. And this was his invitation to be a disciple. We don't know when or how Matthew got this name, but it might have been Jesus himself who gave it to him. Just like when Jesus met Simon and he called him Peter and said, Simon, you know, you are going to be Peter And upon this rock, this confession of Jesus as Lord, I'm going to build my church. Well, Peter was anything but a rock. I mean, Peter was the kind of guy who was pretty outspoken. He said what he thought, and he thought about it later. You know, he just kind of let it out there. And, and, you know, he's very interesting to read about his actions and responses. And Jesus said, you are Peter, and you will be a rock. Matthew means gift of God. I look at this and I think Jesus saw what Levi could become. Levi, you can become a gift of God. And I like that. Because Jesus sees what we can become by the grace of God if we will let him. If we'll surrender ourselves to him and follow him. We all can be changed by his power, his love, his grace. And so Jesus comes to Levi. He may have been at his tax booth there by the road near Capernaum. And he said to Levi, follow me. Follow me. It's a call to be a disciple. It's a phrase that is repeated in the gospel that really means just that. And it's a good description of what it means to be a disciple. We follow Jesus. You see, discipleship requires obedience. And for Levi, it was costly. But what we read here in this text is that when Jesus called, immediately he left everything, he obeyed, and he followed Jesus. That's remarkable. Following Jesus is costly. For Levi, once he left that position, he would never get it back again. He would leave behind his income. He'd leave behind those that he knew there, and there would be no going back. I mean, Peter and Andrew, you know, if things didn't work out as a disciple, they could probably go back to fishing. James and John could probably go back to their father's business and also be fishermen. But for Levi, once he said no to his position as a tax collector, there would be no getting that job back again. Following Jesus calls for radical obedience. And there are a lot of people who would like to come to Jesus and do it on their terms. You know, they, they kind of want to come to Jesus and they still want to keep driving the bus. But that's not what it means to be a disciple. We follow him. We don't lead In fact, it's more like we give him the keys to the bus and we move over off of that driver's seat and we let him lead. And that's when the adventure begins. 
And he takes us down roads that we didn't think we'd go. And some of those are hard roads and some of those are good roads. And he takes us to places that we never thought we would go. But he fills our life with joy. He fills our life with peace, with his presence. And we begin to see our life differently through his eyes. Have you surrendered your life to him? Would you describe yourself as a follower of Jesus who is willing, really, to give him everything and to say, Jesus, I want to go where you lead? Well, Matthew did that. And the second thing we see in this text is that he had a great celebration. Levi threw a party. He held a great banquet for Jesus as the honored guest. And then he invited all of his friends to come. Levi could afford it. There was food. There was uh, drinks that he provided. There was fellowship. There were all of these people that came and they were having a celebration. And it is a beautiful picture of conversion. A change had taken place in Levi's heart. And he wanted others to know why. It's a picture of celebrating new life. And new birth is indeed a reason to celebrate. Every time another person turns to Jesus in faith and repentance, there is joy in heaven. And Jesus tells us that. A little farther in Luke's gospel, we're going to come to those parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin. And when someone loses a sheep and they find it again, they celebrate. When someone loses a coin, a valuable amount of money, and they discover that again, there is joy. And Jesus said, I tell you, in the same way, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Every time a sinner turns to Christ in repentance, there is joy in heaven. And if there's a party in heaven, why shouldn't we celebrate here on earth? And think about this. J.C. Ryle wrote this many years ago. And he was talking about the new birth. And he said the new birth is a far more important event than being married or coming of age or being made a nobleman or receiving a great fortune. It is the birth of an immortal soul. It is the rescue of a sinner from hell. It is a passage from death to life. It is being made a king and a priest forevermore. It is being provided for both in time and eternity. It is adoption into the noblest and riches of all families, the family of God. Now think about that. I mean, I love the way he put that. You know, in our life, we celebrate birthdays. We celebrate weddings. We celebrate graduations. We celebrate anniversaries. And we should. Those are significant milestones in our life. But there is nothing more significant than the day that you came to know Jesus as your Savior and Lord. If you know Christ on that day when you asked him to forgive your sins and you surrendered your life to him, you were born again. And you were adopted into his family. You passed from death to life. And there is nothing greater than that. A second reason to celebrate is this. That when you know Jesus, you want your friends to know him too. I mean, you want others to come into a relationship with him. When I was 10 and I was in fourth grade, it was a friend of mine who invited me to go to a summer Bible camp where I gave my life to Christ. And I think about our kids. You can do this. You can invite your friends to come to camp with you this summer. Or I love it when the kids in our church invite their friends to come to Awana. And they're here and they hear these stories about Jesus. And they learn the scripture. They hear the gospel. And we've seen many come to know Christ through that. Or when students reach out and they invite their friends to come to one of our youth groups or our open rec time. And they build a relationship and these students hear the gospel for the very first time. You can do that. What happens as we get older, though, is that sometimes all of our friends are Christians. And we have known Christ for so long that we really don't have those kind of strong relationships with those who don't know Christ. And we have to be intentional about it, to reach out, 
to build relationships in our neighborhood, at work, in the community, so that we might have the opportunity to help others come to know Christ as well. You and I can do that if we are intentional about it. Can you imagine what would happen if each of us were building that relationship and we invited them to come to church at Easter? Why, we would more than double our attendance if each of us had that kind of relationship and we said, would you come with me this Sunday? We're going to be celebrating what Jesus has done for us. And what do we find when we come to Jesus? We find in this passage that he is a good doctor. He is the great physician. In verse 30, we see that the Pharisees were not happy about this party, and they complained to the disciples. I think it's interesting that they didn't go to Jesus. They tried to discourage those who were following him. Just like Satan will sometimes try to discourage you from following Jesus. And they said this. They said, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, isn't it obvious that you shouldn't do that? Why do you associate with this Gentile and Hebrew scum? I mean, that's what they believed. In their mind, good religious people did not fellowship with sinners. And especially, you didn't eat a meal together. The Pharisees taught strict separation from the world. But Jesus did not. Jesus said we are to separate ourselves from the world's sin, but not from sinners. We are to be in the world, yet not of it. And he would say to the Father in his prayer in John 17, that, I have, that as you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And we are to be that kind of salt and light. We're to be his witnesses wherever we live. We're to be that city on a hill so that others can come to know Christ. They can see the change that he has made in your life. And we're not perfect. We're still sinners. But we have been changed. And by the grace of God, the fruit of the Spirit should be more and more evident in our life. His love, His joy, His peace, His patience, His kindness and gentleness, His faithfulness and His self-control. If you're a believer, though, and when you find yourself with old friends or people who don't know Christ, if you find yourselves still getting drunk or falling back into sinful habits, you need to make a complete break. Because you're not strong enough to stand. They're having more influence on you than you are on them. But if by the grace of God you have grown and you are strong in your faith, there is a need for you to spend time and to share Christ with those who do not know him. You see, Jesus answered the Pharisees with a profound truth here. He said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, Jesus wasn't saying that the Pharisees were healthy or righteous. No, he was talking a little tongue-in-cheek here. The Pharisees thought they were healthy. They thought they were righteous, that they were doing everything according to the book and the rules that they had laid down. But on the contrary, Jesus is saying that it's only those who know they are sick who can be made well. It's only those who understand that they are sinners who can be forgiven and changed. You know, you think about that today. Why do people go to a doctor? Well, they're sick. And those who go to a doctor know that they are sick. They're not arguing about that. And they know they need help. And they know they can't help themselves. That's why they're going to someone else to help them to be well. And the first step in getting well spiritually is to admit that we are sinners and to turn to him in repentance. We don't cover up our sin. We don't deny it or minimize it or excuse it. We admit it to Jesus and we ask for his forgiveness and we turn from it. We look at our life. We look at our actions through God's eyes and we strive to be more and more like him. You know what's wonderful is that that new birth can take place at any age. 
It can take place in a child who's 10 when they hear the gospel for the very first time. It can take place in an elderly person who is nearing death if they will turn to Christ and humble themselves. And there are examples of that that we come across all the time. In one of the biographies that I read about Andrew Jackson, the seventh president of the United States, there is a very touching story that took place at the end of his life or near the end of his life. The book is American Lion. It was written by John Meacham. And uh, American Lion is a good description of Andrew Jackson. I mean, he was a warrior. He had been a fighter all his life. And he ended up, you know, he was a general before becoming president. He had a lot of people who hated him, a lot of people who loved him, thought that he represented kind of the common man. And he was a man who really transformed the presidency in many ways. But he was also a guy who was a little bit of a scoundrel. You didn't want to cross him. If you crossed him, he got even. I mean, he had his enemies. And boy, if you were on the wrong side, you know, he was going to deal with that. And he had a long memory. Well, one year after his last term as presidency, he went to see his pastor, the Reverend Dr. John Edgar, and he said that he wanted to become a member of the Presbyterian Church and receive communion. Dr. Edgar asked the president about his conversion and convictions. He wanted to hear his story, what he believed about Jesus Christ. But Dr. Edgar felt the need to probe the president's soul more deeply. And he said, General, there is one more question which it is my duty to ask you. Can you forgive all your enemies? Can you forgive? The question stunned General Jackson. He stared at his minister for a moment while he gathered his thoughts. And then he broke the silence. And he said, My political enemies I can freely forgive. But as for those who abused me when I was serving my country in the field and those who attacked me for serving my country, that is a different case. It was an honest answer, but Dr. Edgar wasn't satisfied. Christians must forgive all. We are asking Jesus to forgive us our trespasses even as we forgive those who trespass against us. And he insisted to America's seventh president that he must forgive all of his enemies. President Jackson wasn't anticipating that. He wasn't anticipating being probed and pushed in this way. And yet when the time came for him to respond, he knew he had to embrace the claim of the gospel on his life. And one of Jackson's biographers gave us this response. There was a considerable pause, and then Jackson spoke again. Upon reflection, he said he thought he could forgive all who had injured him, even those who reviled him for his services to his country and on the battlefield. He was at long last prepared to grant amnesty to all the scoundrels and poltroons who had ever crossed his path. And on July 15, 1838, at the age of 71... General Andrew Jackson, 7th President of the United States, was admitted into the Presbyterian Church. 71 years old, when his battle-weathered soul and tired body knelt to receive communion for the very first time. And as he did, his biographer tells us that there were tears of penitence and joy that trickled down his careworn cheeks. Meekness had triumphed. A sinner had come home. What a beautiful story. It should give us all hope and encouragement. As we think of our own life and what God has done for us, and as we think of those we know who have not yet come to know Christ, that whatever age there may be, as long as they live, there is still time to turn to Christ. There is still time for you to turn to Christ if you have never done so before. And to admit your sin and ask for his forgiveness for what you have done. And to give him control of your life and say, Jesus, I want to follow you. 
What do we take away from a passage like this? Well, as I was studying, I made these four observations. Number one, don't forget the mission. Don't forget why we're here. Our mission as a church is to go into all the world to make disciples of all nations, all people groups. Be all in. Just like Levi, who left everything to follow Jesus, Jesus asked the same of us. Give him your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Use your gifts for his glory. Be all in. Invite your friends. Tell others about Jesus. Use your home as an embassy of the King of Kings. I've seen that through the family life ministry now, and I think it is such a great concept. But if you are a child of the King and you are ambassador for Christ, your home is really an embassy. And you can use your gifts of hospitality to invite other people in and there to experience fellowship with the King And there to reach out and to use your home as a place where you can build those relationships and be gracious and inviting. And finally, join with Jesus in his great work of calling sinners, never forgetting that we are sinners too. And that we are calling people to experience his grace and mercy just as we have done in our life. Who could you reach out to? Who are you praying for? Who are you building a relationship with today? Let's pray. Father, what a beautiful story. It shows us the change that you can make in a person's heart when they come to know you. One day we may hear more of Levi's testimony of what you did that day. But from the scripture, we can see a man who was willing to leave everything to follow you. And may we be like that. May we surrender all. May we give you every corner of our life, not holding anything back. And Jesus, would you lead us, change us by the grace of God. Forgive us and empower us to live a life that is pleasing to you. We thank you for your patience and for your mercy in doing that. In your name we pray, amen. Well, on this Communion Sunday, we don't have a closing hymn, so I'd invite you to stand for our benediction as we close our service today. And now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loves us and by his grace has given us eternal encouragement and good hope, may he encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. And all God's people said, Amen.